0: creative journey. It's easy to get lost, but don't worry, you'll lift off. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Hey, you're listening to Creative Pep Talk, a weekly podcast companion for your creative journey. I'm Annie J. Pizza. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator, and I will be your guide on this creative expedition. Let's go. Okay, this is episode two of our January Dreamy-Wary series where instead of hitting the ground running, In January this year, we're going to take some space to dream because we're in a totally different world with a totally different landscape. And that means we need to have new dreams of what the future can look like. And so I can't think of any better way to continue our series than to share this conversation with Lisa Marciano, who is a dream analyst and a dream guest on this show she's been on my dream guest list for a while now she is one of the hosts of this young in life podcast and this conversation was a dream come true it was just so powerful i strongly believe and it's kind of become part of my life's work to convince creatives that dreams are one of the most powerful tools For your creativity, it is there is a richness, and learning to work with your dreams will help you develop a muscle to think symbolically and create so much more depth in your creativity. And so, I'm excited uh, not only about that, but also we go through several key concepts of Jungian psychology that have had a massive impact on my style the substance of my work and the stories that I tell. Uh, The ideas in this episode changed my life creatively, and I'm super pumped to share this conversation with you. We get very meticulous in very specific concepts that you can apply directly to your creative practice. Also, just a heads up, Lisa has a new book coming out February 6th. It's called The Vital Spark, Reclaim Your Outlaw Energies and Find Your Feminine Fire. Without further ado, here is my chat with Lisa Marciano. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In the Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. I am. Uh, so giddy to talk to you. Honestly, um, not to fanboy too much, but I would say your show has been the pr- the biggest inspiration Aww. over the past two years. Oh, so that's amazing! Thank you. It it really is. I'm gonna shut this real yeah. quick. Um, so I can hear some echo, but it has just. Uh, I will. I won't. I'll save you from all the details, but it has really made me fall in love with illustration again and I and dreams again because I used to be really into dreams in a more kind of like they're super trippy man like you know (laughs) they are they are and I like that part of it but um I've like yeah just have this whole renewed fascination Mm. and it's just like really brought a ton of life to my, uh, creative practice over the past couple of years.
1: Well, I, I just love hearing things like that makes it all worthwhile. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also, the first thing I was going to ask you about was from the outside, it seems like your show and then also just kind of Jungian thought is having a bit of a moment. Does it feel like that I, to you? You know,
1: it's funny because I'm one of those people who discovered Jung in the 90s when, yeah. when Jungian thought was having a moment. You know, okay. there was Women Who Run With the Wolves and there was Hillman's The Soul's Code and Thomas Moore's Care of the Soul. And I read all those books and I was like, wow. I'll become a Jungian analyst and then you know and then I was like you know because because I I published a book in uh, 2021 and for you know like starting I was querying starting in like 2012 and it was like oh Jung is kind of passe no one's really interested in Jung now and now it's like definitely having a moment and I I like to think that the podcast is part of that I think it's the only thing. But listen, if I think these ideas are so important and have so much positive medicine for the collective that we're in right now, especially this moment, that if I have done anything to help more people become familiar with these ideas and apply them in their own lives, then I can die having done what I came here to do. I
0: I definitely think uh, that you have. And I'll say I have kind of mixed feelings about it because, um, like I got into Joseph Campbell probably 10 years ago and then that was kind of my way into, uh, Carl Jung. And I then recently over the past couple of years have kind of just really, it's been kind of my centering practice really. Um, and so I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I really think these are powerful Ideas that can help a lot of people, but then on the the artist maybe ego side, I'm like, I thought this was my thing. Like, you know, now everybody's talking about this, but honestly, yeah. I'm just kind of thrilled about it. So. Well, I mean, there is a
1: danger that the ideas will be kind of cheapened or watered down. Uh, and, and I do think that there are some in the or l- let's just say that those of us in the Jungian world, I think we all have a, there's a little part of us that's like, no, let's keep the let's keep the magic and the mystery over here. But, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I belong to the Interregional Society of Union Analysts and um, I'm one of the younger ones.
0: Really? Yeah. So
1: we we're and it's really nice. We have seen more young people applying to become analysts in recent years. And I think that's really positive because literally it
0: could die out. Oh man. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. And that's interesting. Well, you know, if you're listening and you've been curious, go for (laughs) it. It seems like there's some openings there. Um, Yeah. If I did, if I had less on my plate, maybe I would take a serious whack at it. I know it's a, it's a pretty big journey. Um, wouldn't but, trade
1: it for the world. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so here's what I wanted to do. I, My podcast listeners have definitely heard me reference different uh, Jungian ideas and how they've impacted my creative practice and really concrete, specific ways. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe I could go over three ideas or philosophies and we could kind of have you just... Mm, wrestle with them a bit and give people a window into what they're about and uh, how, to, how we can kind of relate that to creativity. Are sure. you game for that? I'm game. Okay, so this is kind of Jungian practices that could be used as creative tools. The first one is uh, I want to get into like archetypal symbols
1: mm-hmm.
0: and probably – the most inspiring thing about your show for me is the way that you all wrestle with a particular symbol. Mm -hmm. And I love the, how the language that's shared between the symbol and the reality that it's kind of representing Mm -hmm. and where that poetic kind of uh, energy comes out that has influenced my illustration in direct ways. So when I pick symbols and I'm trying to illustrate an article or an episode of the podcast or whatever idea I'm trying to get at, I'm usually trying to reach for sometimes directly into like um, the book of symbols mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. and find those those symbols that share the same language as the thing they're trying to represent. Uh, uh And you do that so well when Mm. you're going through dreams and, and uh, different stories and, and fables. And I wondered if you could kind of, I listed two that Mm -hmm. you have talked about on the show. And I wonder if you could kind of give an example of how, if, uh, if you know what I'm kind of getting at, how you end up doing that. So the first one, One of my favorite episodes was zombies. Mm -hmm. I love, I'd never thought about them as such a powerful symbol. And uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about how you think about that archetype or symbol?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think anything that kind of captures you, whether on an individual level or a cultural level, it's like, okay, there's something there. It's pointing something. Mm pointing to something. One of the things that Jung said is uh, that symbols will always point beyond themselves. So to something larger, to something ineffable, to something that can't quite be described. So a symbol is the best way to image something that cannot be known exactly. Mm. So there's always this kind of room around it, unlike a, a sign you know, for example, you know, Freud would say, "Well, if you had a cigar in the dream, that's a penis right. So that's yeah. a sign. And it's yeah. like all you have to do is trying <laughs> to substitute one thing right. for another, but there's always something mysterious about a symbol, yeah. so and and i and I do think that symbols exert this kind of pull on consciousness. So when you see, gosh, you know, zombies, I mean, everyone's making a zombie movie and I don't know about you, but I, I think I said this in the episode. I, I really kind of, I really love zombies.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of went, when I had kids, I had this very weird thing where all of a sudden horror just kind of exited me. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't deal. I've got enough horrors dealing with (laughs) like just, you know, sick kids and all this stuff. And so I think I've been taking a break from scary things. Maybe I'll come back to it, but yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I can totally relate to that. I think for I think you just are so aware of vulnerability when your kids are young. At least yeah. I was. Yes. that I agree with you. But um, and I I should probably say I have a love hate relationship with zombies because. Any one of my family members will attest that when I go to see a zombie movie, I spend half of the movie with my my face covered by <laughs> yeah. my hands. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to think of zombies. One of the ways I think about them is that they're just kind of driven by kind of instinct mm. and, a, and a very kind of banal instinct at that. So in, in one of the movies... And God, you're putting me on spot is is it, is it one of the night, it's not the night of the living dead. It's one of the other ones, but they all shuffle off. They all shamble off to the shopping mall. Mm. And there's this kind of great line in the movie. It's like, um, why are they all going there? And It's like, well, maybe, you know, that's what they did during life. So it's just kind of, you know, and it's just, it's, it's true. Sometimes if you look at the way that, that we go through our lives, it, it feels like we're kind of disconnected. We're just going through the motions. There isn't any connection there. There's no, you know, zombies are not capable of recognizing another human being whom they used to love. That's one of the things that always happens Mm. in every zombie movie is, you know, someone sees his wife, his beloved wife, who's now a zombie and she's, you know, coming toward him and mm. he feels this moment of ambivalence and what should he do because it's his wife, but then she goes to eat him, yeah. you know? So, so it's this, it's this real lack of connection or lack of eros, as uh, we Jungians would say this desire to kind of connect and, mm. and a feeling response. And of course there's also Sean of the dead, yeah, I, I think is one. the one yeah. where, where he, he finds his feeling. There's another one too that has yeah. a similar uh, theme and it's sort of like the the zombie redeemed is the zombie that
0: can love and feel. Mm-hmm. Man, that that's so powerful, and I it kind of gets at even when you see I, I loved on the episode we were talking about like the con- the consuming of brains, like consuming yes. of the mind, and you see like shopping, consumption, going yes. to the mall, these these ways that people get kind of consumed in this. Non-conscious, uh, yeah, kind of behavior. So there's a compulsivity about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we all know these people in our lives, especially over the past five six years, that have been consumed by fear and ideas, yes. and people that we used to recognize and love, all of a sudden are just gone. Yeah. Sure. Yes. And yes. so I love it. I I yeah, love yeah. that. And that one really brought it to life. Another one that I just had the most profound experience with was the recent one on the Selkie. Mm. And oh, that's uh, right. you yeah, about it that, was yeah. Uh, yeah, just incredible. What, Could you what? tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Tell
1: me, first of all, what?
0: caught you in that episode. So if people uh, aren't familiar, could you tell just like sure. a brief mm-hmm. version of what that, yeah. that story is so about?
1: Really, really quick version. Sure. There is a small farmer and he is uh, wandering uh, around the shores of Scotland at night and he sees three beautiful women singing in the moonlight naked and he moves toward them and they all slip on their seal skins and they slip into the water. So they're selkies. Selkies can swim in the water, but they can also come out on land so, and he wants to have one for his wife. So he consults a, a wise woman, I think, and she tells him what to do. So the next time that they're up on land, he's very, very quiet. He sneaks over and he grabs one of their skins. Two of them slip on their skins and get in the water. But the third one is standing there shivering and he puts his coat around her and he says, don't worry, I'm going to take good care of you. He takes her home. You know, they're you know, he's her husband and she's a good wife and they have a ton of kids But, you know, in some versions of the story, it says, you know, she was a good mother, but her children never saw her smile. Mm. And she used to look to the water wistfully. And one day everyone's gone, but her youngest child and her youngest child says, you know, you know, mom, why does dad keep that old skin behind that loose brick? Mm. And she goes right to the loose brick and she finds her skin. She puts it on, she hugs her child and she's gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a story that I only became familiar with in the past couple of years um, with the film "Song of the Sea." Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Uh, I, lo- yeah. I loved. The, yeah. I, we, my whole family just loved that. And I think that part of the reason why—I mean, honestly, like I said, there were you, you. What I love is you kind of look at these things from so many different angles, and all of them have different levels of profound, like. Thoughts that maybe even negate each other. Yes. Or they're just all these yes. different versions. And I just, yes. I love that. So honestly, multiple times on that episode, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. Um But I think part of it was because that movie or that story impacted me on such a visceral level. Mm. But I hadn't given it much thought about why. Mm-hmm. And, um you know, in retrospect, my... I've talked about on the show a bunch because it's a big part of my creative journey. That my my I have ADHD. I believe that comes from my mom. Mm. Um, she isn't diagnosed or anything like that, but she really had a hard time sticking around to anything. Oh, wow. So she left my wow. family when I was really little. Started another family. Left that family. Oh. Just kind of you know all over the place. So your mom was a self. Yeah, and I really think and her sisters too had a similar story and i remember kind of in my early 20s like up into uh i had a pretty like profound kind of healing around in my teens they were all just villains mm-hmm.
1: to everybody
0: in the family of like mm-hmm. these terrible sure. women that can't stick with being you know moms or whatever And in my early twenties, I had a shift in realizing that they really had lost themselves in motherhood. And I know you have a lot of work about this. Your, your book, I know touches on this. Um, and yeah, I think it just, I just realized that a huge part of why that story impacted Mm -hmm. me the way it did is because this is a very familiar experience, you know, you've lived a part of it. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so in a similar way with the zombies one, I loved when the language around consuming minds as like this symbolic thing that gets at the zombie thing. And then also the literal thing. Yeah. I loved what you said about, um, you know, feeling comfortable in your skin or getting kind of disconnected with who you are. Mm-hmm. I felt like that as a symbol was just very powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our brain is really wired for metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, And I wondered if you had any, because I know you're also really, um, uh, you know, the fairy tales are a big part of Mm -hmm. your background with this. Mm -hmm. Do you have any symbols that have particular poetic power for you?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I would say, you know, so many. One of my favorite fairy tales, and there's just so many reasons that I love it. But it's uh, Vasilisa the Beautiful, which we've never mm. talked about on the podcast. But okay. We really should. But it, I do write about. I have a book coming out in February. Oh, there I got to
0: plug my book. And, I, and <laughs> no, in it, I, you, I I really want you to plug your book. It's Vital Spark because the Vital the new Spark, book, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'll talk. We can talk about that too. Um, but
1: but it's one of Vasilisa the Beautiful is one of the fairy tales that I do. And you know, it, it's interesting because I loved that fairy tale when I was a child. I have no idea why, you know. Yeah. Um, I just, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I still love it. And now, of course, I I do understand why. But, you know, every time I read it, I see something new. I I mean, these tales are just so deep. But yeah. uh, it just maybe to um, flesh it out a little bit. So it's kind of a Cinderella setup. Her mother has died. Well, it starts in the story. Her mother's alive, but her mother's sick. And as her mother's dying... Her mother calls her to her and says, You know, these are my final words. I'm giving you this doll. This is a very special doll. When you feel distressed, give it something to eat and drink and tell it your troubles Mm. and, you know, keep it with you always. So then she dies. So then her father (laughs) remarries. And, of course, you know, evil stepmother, evil stepsisters. And, you know, Vasilisa is growing up to be very beautiful. And the stepsisters are homely. So the stepmother doesn't like Vasilisa. And uh, they give Vasilisa all the work to do. But every night, Vasilisa gives the doll a little bit to eat and a little bit to drink, and she tells the doll her troubles. And the Vasilisa always says, um, "Go to sleep now." I mean, I'm sorry. The doll says, "Go to sleep now, Vasilisa, for the morning is wiser than the evening." Mm. And just just the other day, I was thinking, I need to put that on a t shirt. I love yeah. that. The morning is wiser than the evening. So this doll to me is so beautiful because you were talking about your mom. I think if we if we have a different kind of mom than your mom, I mean, you get something from a mom like your mom. Oh, like definitely. you probably
0: have a wild heart. I have all kinds of things from, yes, my, from yes, my good and bad. yep, yeah,
1: all, always all, all of us do. yeah. um, if you have a good enough mother, mm. you get something like Vasilisa's doll mm. where you know how to treat yourself when you're facing hardship and and it's like you know if you're worried about something let's say i don't know let's say there's some kind of crisis like one of your kids is screwing up at school or you're worried about money or something and you're lying awake and you're perseverating about it and you're yeah. you're not doing yourself any good you're just making yourself anxious and if you could just say to yourself you know what just go to sleep we'll think about it in the morning and it and you know i i just i i i remember kind of becoming consciously aware of that when i was in my late twenties that, you know, there are times when you just shouldn't try to solve a problem because you're too distraught.
0: Absolutely. So,
1: you know, go take a bath, go get something to eat. You can attack the problem when you're feeling better. And that's what the doll tells her to do, which is so, so if we've been uh, mothered by a good enough mother, when we get distressed, we do this for ourselves. Mm. We, we sort of comfort ourselves first and then we can turn toward problem solving if your little kid comes to you crying, you know, you, you you get down at their level, right? And you say, "Oh, what's the matter?" And you let them tell the story. And sometimes just saying what's wrong is enough. Yeah. Right? You don't jump right away to problem solving. You don't tell them you shouldn't worry about that. It doesn't, you know, it's not a problem. You don't dismiss it. You just let them have the feeling. Yeah. And maybe you mirror the feeling. "Oh, that must be Oh, of course that hurts." And then when they calm down a little bit, then you can either move to perspective taking or problem solving or a, like an, an adaptive way of dealing with the challenge. Yeah. So that's the image of Vasilisa's doll for me. It's like an internalized capacity to do that for yourself. Yeah. So Vasilisa's had this good mother. But guess what? If you have a good mother, there's something you don't know, which is that the world is hard and some, not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's mm. going to love you. Yeah. And you don't you don't know how to access your aggression a lot of the time, particularly maybe if you're a woman. I don't know. We could talk about that. But sure. I, I think that, you know, it, 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 being being raised in a kind of rough and tumble way for both men and women, like one of the possible upsides is you're street smart. You know how to take care of yourself. Mm. If you've had a mother who's really cherished you, you may not know that. So back to the story, Vasilisa's stepmother basically sets her up. So that she has to go uh, get a light. The house has gone dark. There's no fire. It was the stepmother arranged that so that she could send Vasilisa to the hut of Baba Yaga. Mm -hmm. Baba Yaga is just one of my favorite fairy tale characters. And she lives in the middle of the forest on this house that's on... Uh, up on chicken feet and the little house can run around and it's surrounded by a fence made of human bones with a glowing human skull on every fence post and (laughs) she eats people. Yeah. So, but the little doll says, you're going to be fine. Go, go do it. You can just bring me with you. You're going to be fine. And so, you know, Baba Yaga lets her in and says, I'll give you a light, but you have to work for me first. And, you know, gives her all kinds of impossible tasks before she goes out she travels in a uh, mortar and pushes herself along with a pestle, which is a very strange mm. mode mm-hmm. of uh, travel mm-hmm. that we could talk about. Yeah, um, I have a feeling there's something shamanic about that. But in any case, when she's gone, Vasilisa has to do these absolutely impossible fairy tale tasks, like clean every poppy seed of any dirt. And and Bobby Eck says, if you don't do this, I will eat you. But mm. of course. The doll does it for her. And then at the end, uh, Baba Yaga says, how have you been able to do this? And and Vasilisa answers very wisely, um, my mother's blessing. Mm. And Baba Yaga kicks her out of the house and uh, says, here, take, I don't want anyone here with a blessing. Here, go, go, get out. But she gives her one of the fiery skulls and she said, give that to your stepmother. So Vasilisa walks through the night Carrying the skull with its eyes glowing. Yeah. She gets back home at daylight. She thinks, you know, they probably got another light by now. So she goes to throw the skull in the ravine. And the skull says, Don't throw me away. Baba Yaga said, I'm I'm to go to your stepmother. So Vasilisa takes the skull in, and the skull's fiery eyes follow the stepmother and stepsisters around until they're burned to death. <laughs> so Vasilisa has gotten access to her aggression Mm. through her apprenticeship to the dark goddess. Yeah. And this same story is found all the way back to ancient Sumeria with the story of Inanna and Ereshkigal. It's a very similar story. And Inanna, the beautiful kind of Aphrodite like goddess, she goes down into the underworld to visit her sister Ereshkigal and she comes back actually with the eyes of death, mm. meaning she can kill you with a look. Mm. So it's exactly the same motif from a totally different part of the world from thousands of years before. So this is this is this stuff. This is this kind of archetypal bedrock. Yeah. And I think this is a journey that all women have to undertake. We have to get access to our aggression. And it is dangerous. And it is fraught. And it's scary. And it's totally worth it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. There's so many good visual images, oh, yes. too. It makes me want to um, create some of them in my uh, style. But I also was I'd fascinated by... Um, and I loved this idea of her, her mother telling her to do this with the doll. Yeah. Because it also puts her in a mothering role. And it also makes her... Yes in touch with her inner mother when her mother's gone. Yes. Um, So, yeah. But you could do that, that example, you could do that with a million aspects of these kind of stories. Yeah. And I wanted to go into that because both because I think it starts to get at how symbolism can work in, in your creative work. And it shows, I find that when I work with creators just starting out, they are initially skeptical that there is any depth mm-hmm. under the stuff they're making the stuff they're attracted to. And I think the, that story and in these examples just kind of highlight how far you can go down and so much further than a, than you said, like a sign. You
1: know? Well, and and that's the thing, the reality of the psyche. It's all of us have that depth. We may not know we have it. We may not think we may deny that we have it, but it's around us all the time, and we experience it in different ways. I, I um, I know this young man who has really uh, he works hard to deny the reality of the psyche. Oh. He's actually a very soulful person, but he has a pretty crippling obsessive compulsive disorder, and I and I think it's. It's because he's, you know, he's trying to repress all of that depth, but then yeah. look, it comes out. And, you know, it's <laughs> the thing about OCD is that you know it's nuts what you're mm, doing. Yeah, you you right, know that, yeah. you know, something terrible is not going to happen if you don't touch the door frame 14 times before you leave. Yeah. But a part of you, you're gripped by this irrational ritual. What is that if not the psyche yeah. in its destructive form? Yeah, yeah. So if you could access it. You know in in a if you could if you could open up that channel then you could have it could feed you it could
0: shower you with its riches and creative work is a great way to do that yes the second one i wanted to talk about was i wanted to see if you could kind of explain f- from what i know it's it, the maybe the most specific term is like a psychoanalytic reading of a dream or mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. just the concept of what that means cuz it's a pretty big shift in how you think about a dream or you think about a story yes uh, Could you tell us about that? Sure
1: Well just uh, with dreams for example, we we most of the time assume that every person element in the dream is an aspect of the dreamer's psyche. So then the dream ego, that's the I in the dream, is kind of interacting with parts of the psyche. It's a little bit like that movie, um, Inside Out. Was that the name of yeah. the movie? Yeah. Yes. You know, it's like you're, you're going into the inner world and you're talking to other parts of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that is hard to wrap your head around. So if you have a dream about your boss whom you hate and your boss is being a real big jerk in the dream, it's easy to wake up and think, well, my boss is a jerk. But you already knew that. And dreams won't usually take the trouble to tell you something you already knew. So it's, yeah. you've got, you have to wonder, what am I missing? What's, what's the hidden thing here? And uh, it's that there's a part of you that's like your boss. Mm-hmm. So then you have to think, oh, how am I like my boss? Which is a pretty uncomfortable thing to think. So it's challenging to think that way, but it's a it's a symbolic reading. And of course, the same thing with fairy tales, right? We assume that, for example, the the stepmother and stepsisters in the fairy tale are an aspect of the psyche of Vasilisa and Baba Yaga is also an, an element in the objective psyche of yeah. this one person.
0: Yeah. I mean it's uh it's such a it's a powerful shift and you go apply it to the things you're consuming and reading or the dreams you're having and it for me it instantly unlocked a lot of richness that wasn't there and you see even in the culture the lack of uh, awareness around this you you see a lot of people kind of just talking about how why do we have all these movies about orphans and why do we have all these movies about? princes and princesses and all these like those are those are relatable to us what you know i just feel like you get a lot of when you read it just literally and you think of stories that way or you think of your dreams that way you're unable to access yeah. all of these other pieces that are going on
1: right i mean i have a particular irritation with kind of feminist fairy tales yeah People say, "Oh, these these fairy tales are so you know they're so old fashioned." Yes, it's like, but no, it's not. It's not that Cinderella is rescued by the prince. She finds a princely part of herself. There's so much richness and depth, and we get out of this polarity of like good and bad. You know, you can do that same kind of thing with anything out in the world because we we sort of treat the world. Like it's part of us really. Yeah. So there was someone who wrote a great thread on what used to be called Twitter. (laughs) It's now called X um, about how, you know, she years ago she was seeing this sounds like a wonderful analyst. And um, she was talking a lot about her, the plight of the Palestinians and how she resonated, you know, how, how important that was to her. And he said, what part of you Mm. is feeling oppressed and disenfranchised? And then she was railing against the Israelis, and he said, "What part of you is oppressing you?" Mm. And she said that she was taken aback, but she um, she sort of got. And it's so important to to it's so important to try that on. It's not that real world events aren't happening in the real world, and it's not that everything is kind of solipsistically about us. Yeah. But if we can see how we're interacting with things, where we're projecting our own content onto the world, it can help us from slipping into black and white, one-sided thinking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. that. And it makes so much sense, too, because if your heart is going out to a particular thing, it's because it's speaking to something that's happening within you. There's there's a reason why this thing has captured your attention, and you're probably not conscious of it. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and if and as a creator, if you do start noticing the things that are enrapturing you and, yeah. and taking your attention, and you start taking that psychoanalytic view of it, you're going to start getting to some of the core conflicts and messages and content that can be really, really good to explore in your creative practice. You can start saying like, well, what, once she got into, you know, what part is oppressing me, what part feels oppressed, you're going to get a, uh, beyond the symbol, you're going to get some of the like philosophy that you can then animate through fiction or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, it can just be kind of like a treasure trove of content and, and, and substance when you look at it that way. So
1: I have a question for you. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So it so it used to be that a lot of artists would avoid a Freudian analysis because mm. the sense was that art was created kind of out of a neurotic place. Mm. And if you cured the neurosis, you sort of dried everything up hmm. and the juice was gone. Yeah, that's but, funny. But I, I do find that a lot of creative people are attracted to Jung and you know, just listening to what you were saying just now, you know, there is a danger to making too much of what is implicit explicit, right? Because yeah. does it take the juice out of the creative process? I remember reading a, an interview with Neil with Neil Gaiman uh-huh. about um, the hero's journey. Yeah, and he said he started reading it, and then he was like, "I don't want to know that because <laughs> yeah. it's just right." He just he just creates those stories; it just comes up spontaneously from the unconscious. And if you make it too explicit, does it, in your opinion, run the risk of kind of, um, taking the magic out of it?
0: Yeah. Or being kind of too on the nose or something like that. You know, I personally feel that in my own practice, I, I think a lot about like what's timely and then what's timeless. And I think in terms of timeliness, I feel like, uh, and this is kind of wa- one thing that made me wonder if this is why Jungian thought is potentially having a moment is that we're consuming so much content, and I don't feel like we're digesting it. Yeah, we're not analyzing it. I feel like it's almost just like, did you like it? Did you not like it? Was it pleasurable experience or was it not? Like, because you're binge watching TV and you're binging all, you know, you're binging all yeah, of yeah. this stuff all yeah, the time. Yeah. And I think for me, one of the things that has been so powerful about it is that it's given me tools to analyze the stuff that's that I'm consuming right and that's also impacted the way that i I think about the stuff that I'm creating because I feel like we were', we're maybe we're in a time where um, I don't know a lot of artists don't want to say they want to say either it doesn't mean anything or it means a lot, anything. Mm-hmm. It could mean anything mm-hmm. to anybody. And I almost feel like with the way that, uh, you know, people have left religion in droves yes, that we have lost a lot of the meaning.
1: Yeah. And so absolutely. for
0: me, it's been like powerful to it purposefully inject meaning into things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also I kind of just think that, um, I'm a big believer in, well, you know, the tension of opposites. So I'm a believer in like trying to do a middle thing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think about it like um, uh, in in the writer, in the writing world, have you heard the term plotters versus pantsers? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of debate on like which one's better or whatever. And what I love about something like, Uh, like Lost, that show, is a a good example that I think a lot of people would say was too much of a pantser thing. Okay, It's too unconscious. It's too like, we don't know where it's going. We don't know what it means. We didn't even know what happened at the end. I don't know. We didn't didn't know. And then, um, you know, the opposite energy is like too intentional, too on the nose, too too specific. I'm always trying to do a balance, like um, Curb Your Enthusiasm is my kind of like, true north of that particular Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. where they have a three act outline. They know where it's going, but they don't have a script. So they know, okay, at the end of this scene, this thing has to have happened, but we don't know how we're going to get there. So that's not exactly the thing that you're asking, but that's kind of how I think about it. it.
1: Well, so what comes up for me when you say that is that there's kind of this partnership between the ego and the unconscious. Yeah. The ego is like, you know, you know, I need to sit down and write, you know, part of a chapter today, unconscious. And the unconscious is like, okay, you know, let me help you with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly that. And so I think that um, like when I used to be like in uh, college, I was making a lot of like art rap music. Um, <laughs> I didn't know anything about what I was doing, but all of that was just like unconscious, like yeah, almost yeah. word vomit. Yeah. And I was blown away by how after the fact I'd be like, Oh, I know what that was about. Like yeah. that's so, and, and so, but I've, I've found that, um, yeah, I think having a little bit of tools on both sides yeah, I yeah. Think can make really powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I, the, the thing I always talk about on my podcast is mm. the master and his emissary, Yeah. but talking about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and yes. how they have to kind of work together. And there's the implicit and, and that, which is, uh, you know, kind of bubbles up holistically from the unconscious, but then you need the, the sort of left brain, let me hone that and make it, put it into a readable sentence. How
0: about that? You know? Yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that just so that because my listeners might not.
1: Yeah, know it's this incredible book by uh, Ian McGilchrist. And uh, it's called The Master and His Emissary. And the title comes from, uh, I think it's a Nietzsche kind of parable. Yeah, there was this, um, there was this master who had this emissary. And th- what happens in this story is the emissary usurps the master. So the the emissary should be serving the master, but instead it kind of takes control. And McGilchrist goes through all of this. It's a it's a commitment to read it, but it's well worth it. Goes through all of this brain science and philosophy, basically, and says, you know, there like the the human brain is pretty uh, hemispheric. Like the mm. hemispheres are different. The more, the more we've involved, the more different they've gotten. Like this is not an accident. They're, they're, they're doing something different. Mm -hmm. And McGilchrist says something like the kind of attention that you pay to pay to the world is shaped by kind of which hemisphere is online. Mm. So the, the right hemisphere is more concerned with that which is not yet known. It looks at the broad picture It is uh, embodied, it's implicit. The left hemisphere is very interested in what is already known. The explicit, it it, um, breaks things up into parts. And there's just all this fascinating split brain research to back this up. And... um, and he says that these two parts really have to work together. It's it's not that whatever it was the 70s or 80s kind of right brain versus left sure. brain thing. It's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah. But but there is this kind of dialectical process of things being sort of almost handed back and forth between the hemispheres. And when you're a creator, when you're an artist, some of the process has to be explicit. Yeah. You know, there's skill involved. Um, but there's also the input from the 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 implicit side, which I think of as the unconscious,
0: yeah, I agree, and I another thing that came to mind, I don't know if I don't know if this is my idea or not, but I it's something that I've thought a lot about where speaking of kind of projecting the psyche on the external mm-hmm. world, one of the things I've thought a lot about is I've actually heard Austin Cleon say, you know having separate desks, analog desk. And then like a, a, you know, digital desk. And the way I thought about that was so much of the creative process is about how do you on command access yeah. those different energies. Yes, yes. And so if you externalize those energies into this is my right brain desk, this is my left oh, brain desk, like you might be able to train your brain. And I think a lot of this show to o- overly simplistic view, like you mentioned uh, in the eighties and whatnot, mm-hmm. how they kind of went, um, <laughs> crazy about the left brain, right. right brain thing. Um, but if you are going to make it really simple, I'm very right brained, yeah. but the way that I've shown up on the podcast has more to do with encouraging my past self, but then also people listening to see the creativity of the left brain, hmm. because I know that that's not how people tend to, th- I think we tend to think of creativity as that pants or energy, mm-hmm. the kind of Ouija board, yep. like just where's it going thing. Yep. But I think it's just as creative in a different way to have like a strategic problem solving energy, yes. almost yes. like you're doing a puzzle. Yes. And so- that's yeah. So I well, feel it's like... kind
1: of Hephaestus versus Dionysus. Oh, too. tell us about that. Yeah. So I mean, this is one of the ways that you know we think about creativity in the Jungian world. If you're thinking about it in a kind of archetypal frame, Dionysus is this, uh, you know, um, very expansive but cr- kind of wild energy. I mean, yeah. you know the the main ads could be pretty destructive when they were, you know, out in the woods, worshiping Dionysus. And of course he's the God of wine yeah. and, you know, it, and it, that's maybe more of the kind of panzer stuff, you know, it's just, this yes. is, ju- this is just um, raw inspiration. We don't know where it's going to go. It could get totally out of control. Yeah. It's, it's unleashed, you know, whereas Hephaestus, you know, Hephaestus was um, misshapen, he, he was one of the few gods who didn't really hang out very much on Mount Olympus because he was down below in the forge just working away. Yeah. He just was putting his nose to the grindstone and making all these beautiful things, beautiful, clever things for the gods to use. So the, 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 those, those two kinds of energies I think we need We need some of both of them. I mean, another image that I have for this is the story of um, the elves and the shoemakers. Do you know that story? I
0: do. And I'm only kind of from my childhood, vaguely uh, remembered it, but I was just thinking about an illustration based on that oh, making really? an illustration based on that idea. Wow. Um, like a cup, like two weeks ago or something, but huh. yeah, t- tell, tell, okay. tell me what you're thinking. Well,
1: now I don't want to make it too explicit. No, it's like, fine. Okay. Please do.
0: Cause I was, I was using it in a very, to say a particular thing,
1: uh-huh. but yeah. So there, there, if you just very quickly, the story is the, there's a shoemaker he's, you know, he's fallen on hard times. He has enough leather Uh, he has enough money to buy some food and the leather for one pair of shoes. And then that's going to be it. So he, he, they eat, he cuts up the leather and leaves it on his workbench. And then lo and behold, these little elves come and they make the most beautiful pair of shoes that he's able to sell that pair of shoes for enough money to, to buy food and, leather for two shoes mm. and then he cuts the leather out and the, the elves come at night and they make two beautiful shoes and it goes on like that until finally the, the it's a, such a sweet story the shoemaker and his wife say oh we, we want to thank these little elves so they make them a little suit of clothing and they leave it out for them at Christmas I think and the elves come in and they're so delighted to see their clothing and they put the clothing on and they prance around and the, the shoemaker and his wife are watching but the elves never come back after that. <laughs> Yeah. But it, but it doesn't matter because Mm. at that point the the shoemaker is able to make the beautiful shoes by himself. And to me, this is an analogy for my creative process Yeah. because my writing process is I wake up in the morning and I write for 30 minutes. I try to write 300 words. And what I find is my unconscious usually has about that amount to give me. Mm -hmm. And then I, Close the computer and I go about my day. And while I'm going about my day, in the shower or on my run or whatever, my unconscious is cooking right where it left off. Yeah, it's like I I cut out the leather and the unconscious is making the beautiful shoes. So that when I wake up in the morning, I have another three hundred words. It's very difficult. Some people say, "Oh, I couldn't write. I can't write. I don't have the time to write because I have I work." And I, I'm like, yeah. I do get it. I mean, sure. you can get in that flow state where you just want eight clear hours, but I actually got to hate writing like that. Oh, me it too. It is painful. Yeah.
0: And what's hilarious is that's exactly the illustration I was making. Really? It is. I was, you know, ha- having done this podcast for nine years, I have really dove into, in my own kind of layman's way, the research around creativity oh, and, and all that kind yeah. of thing. And it was an illustration about the incubation phase of creativity. I was thinking about how, uh, that I was thinking about that story as an example of how the little elves of your subconscious go to work while you're asleep or whatever. There you go. go. That's, that's, uh, that's great. That's a good bit of synchronicity, um, which which I'll take. Um, that's fantastic. All right. So the third and final one that I wanted to talk about was, um, so kind of a shift from the psychoanalytic reading of a story to the psychoanalytic approach to creativity. Mm-hmm. I, I Earlier, one of the big breakthroughs in my process, uh, back in 2011, I did a new character every weekday for a year as this mm-hmm. like public project, and it's what became Invisible Things. Wow. And uh, that came from hearing in interviews, Charles Schultz, talk about how he would, his name's Charles. So he'd always get asked like, are you Charlie Brown? Uh And uh, he would say, he said something that I didn't, I didn't have any framework for this at the time, Mm -hmm. but I was fascinated by it. And he said, well, I'm actually all of the characters. So Lucy is my like sarcastic funny side. Snoopy is like kind of who I wish I was in terms of being cool. Linus Uh is my religious side and i remember thinking that is incredible yeah, yeah. and that's what i made that project from Wow. and then looking back realizing that oh that project was almost a psychoanalytic yeah. creative process well, or like it, active imagination yeah it was kind
1: yeah. of like an active imagination can you tell us about Absolutely. that and
0: what yeah. uh, the process of active imagination because i think creators could get a lot of you know um content and substance mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. work by Approaching it through that. Lens. So, active imagination is a
1: is a technique that Jung developed to engage with the unconscious, and it, and you know the the process is very simple. It it's good to start with an image. It could be an image from a dream. Um, sometimes I like to throw the I Ching and start with a hexagram as the image, mm. but it could be you know an image from a fairy tale too, or 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 an image from a movie that's caught something that has some psychic heat to it. Um, and you simply kind of rest into not a, not a kind of real meditative state. You want to, you know, turn off your phone, close the door, clear the space, have an intention and drop a little bit, but you're not trying to completely, uh, go unconscious. Mm. And, and then you call up the image in your mind's eye and you just sort of sit there until something happens and eventually it will move. Mm. And it may talk to you, and it all may um, be very uh, cryptic and you may feel like you're making it up, which you are in a way I mean it's all yours right It's all your material mm. um and and uh you, you, that, that's it's a way of engaging with the characters and the unconscious and it's a way of working with dreams too it's a way of kind of having a fuller experience of the dream. Can you talk about what that looks like mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I tend to use active imagination. Well, I, I guess I use it. I use it if there, if it feels like the dream is really important and there's something there for me more that I want to know, or sometimes I use it when I, I'm really not sure what the dream means. And I've done a lot of work on the dream and it still isn't, you know, turning something loose for me. I'm like, well, let, let's do this. And, and so I'll, I'll go in and I'll have an experience of the dream. You know, Jung called it dreaming the dream onward mm. So, uh, you know, I'm back in the dream and I'm maybe interacting with the dream element, whatever that was, the octopus, let's say. And maybe the octopus starts talking to me and, you know, in a way that didn't happen in the dream, but it's happening now. And I can have this kind of dialogue with the unconscious about it. And then I always write it down and you can kind of interpret it the same way you might
0: interpret a dream. That's a... Perfect place to uh, make one little extra shift. So I one of the things I love about your show and also just generally what I find really useful about DreamWork as a creator is I feel like it gets my brain into that metaphorical state. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, dream work as like a brain training for getting into visual symbol and metaphor.
1: Yeah. Into, yeah. Into that symbolic stance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hearing you three talk through dreams puts me in that Mm -hmm. zone creatively to get working in that. If you had, if someone's never done dream work and they're just starting to scratch the surface do you have any go-to tool for exploring that?
1: Yes. Well, um, so first of all, um, everyone should work with their dreams. Yeah, it's really amazing. Agree. Um, if you, most people I find who don't work with their dreams say they don't remember their dreams. Yeah. And uh, we actually have a free PDF on our website somewhere that gives a whole bunch of information. Cool. Um, so there are some, you know, there's some good tools out there for remembering dreams. So basically, the most important thing is get something to write your dreams down on and write something every morning. So that the first thing you do in the morning is you roll over, you pick up your dream journal. And even if you just write, I don't remember what I dreamt, you're, 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 there's kind of just a, a like muscle memory that you're going to pick up the pen every morning. And if you do remember something, even if it's really fleeting, write it down. Don't ignore dream fragments. And as you begin to write them down more, you will remember more. Mm. There's a whole bunch of other things that you can do to provoke dream recall. But that's that's the major tip. And then once you start writing them down, you know um, – be curious about them. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, in terms of free resources, we model it in every episode of yeah. the podcast and that, that, that can sort of get you going. We also have dream school, which is uh, where you can sign up and learn how to interpret your dreams. Yeah. Um, and we're actually writing a book that'll be out in uh, about a year. Whoa. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's super. I'm so excited about it. That is so awesome. excited about it. Yeah. The three of us are writing a book that's, it looks like the title is going to be dream wise. Cool. That's great. It'll be a really good resource for people wanting to work with their dreams.
0: And I think it's really powerful practice. Like I said, to getting training your brain to get into that kind of unconscious metaphorical material Mm -hmm. that's so good to create from. And it's always there. Like that's the thing. It's like, it's in you right now. Yeah. And I, I thought this too, like, so many creators I know struggle to like find the content or find original things to talk about. I'm like, your unconscious is literally writing poems yeah, to you every yes, night. Yes. Like you have a wealth of stuff. You don't even have to do anything to it. You can literally just translate. Like, you know, some of my favorite artists, people like Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah. His, his movies just feel like dreams. Yes, you gotta literally yes, just pull absolutely. a dream out. And you're like, I don't even know what it means. Like, that's sure yours. It's giving you that material every single day.
1: And and the thing about dreams is, you know, you wake up and you have a dream in the morning, and you realize, like, they're un, in no in no universe could I have ever thought that exactly. up consciously. Yes. Right. What part of me came up
0: with that? It's I mean, that's so creative. It's and it's so creative, it's generatively creative with, like you said, without any effort. Yeah. Um. I'll tell you this too. This is just something that I've noticed that's funny is as I've gotten more and more um, habitual with kind of like analyzing my dreams and thinking about them, I have noticed that there's some level of my ego that when I wake up, there's a lot of times where the first thing I think when I remember the dream, I have some part of me that's like, well that one's not important. Oh God, yes. What is that? Oh God, yes. It's like a sab- It's like he it's like the ego is like scared you're getting at something. That's what I feel. <laughs> yes, like.
1: no, I I think that I think there often is kind of resistance to knowing the message of the dream because the dream, like I said before, is always going to tell us something we don't know already. Yeah. And it's going to come from this other perspective, the perspective of what I like to call the dream maker. Yeah. And and like the dream maker is like, you know, Jung has this great quote, in each of us there is another whom we do not know. He speaks to us in dreams and tells us how differently he sees us from the way we see ourselves. Mm. So, your dream maker's going, like, you think that you're sort of, you know, super hot shit, but actually, let me show you this part of yourself over here. And it's like, who wants to hear that, you know? I mean, sometimes I like to say that the dream maker is kind of like a bad boss and that he only gives you negative feedback. I mean, dreams sometimes do give you a high five. They definitely do. Sure. But they're more likely to be like,
0: you didn't do, you need to work on this, you know. But getting into that, facing yourself, self reflecting, getting into, getting that level of awareness, that's where you get the authenticity of great creative work. Yeah. Um, One last thing, and I wanted to just give you. a chance to talk about your books and uh, you know, both of them deal with kind of uh, feminine energy. Mm -hmm. And I personally, I'm in, I'm 37. I think from what I can tell, it seems like it's a pretty typical thing for uh, someone in my shoes to be feeling like it's time to more uh, intentionally integrate the feminine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I feel like my dreams are going that direction Mm -hmm. over and over uh have you thought about whether these books are r- related to men wanting or i mean i'm i'm not specifically uh overly identified in the masculine energy and we have i have all friends and and gender is a very fluid thing in in my experience and opinion but in terms of energy yeah 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 the that has been such a a big thread for me recently of yeah. integrating the feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think it looks like for someone to successfully integrate that side?
1: You know, I think if, if you're a woman who's wanting to integrate the masculine or a man who's wanting to integrate the feminine, you know, the, the first thing you have to do is get really comfortable with um, the near energy. You know, mm. know what I mean? Mm. So if, if, if a man who's really comfortable with the masculine, will have a better time integrating the feminine. Mm. You see what I
0: mean? Can I, can you say a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's really, it gives me more questions than answers, but in mm-hmm. an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, cause maybe, maybe I'm saying that because it's really about uh, accepting all of you. Mm. It isn't about, you know, rejecting some parts of yourself in favor of some other principle. Mm. Um, it's growing larger. Yeah. So uh, and and when I say you know th- this is such a funny thing to talk about because masculine and feminine I, I, we're talking about them as psychological principles, sure. and it's just really devilish to try to pinpoint what that is without calling upon these kind of regressive stereotypes. Yes. Right. But there there is something that i think we could all say well that's feminine and i'm i'm not talking about like high heels and lipstick i'm talking sure. about you know sort of the receptive the nurturing versus the you know kind of more active and and thrusting if it were of the masculine yeah. and both of these principles are important for both sexes yeah so and you know but 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 what can happen is you you can sort of silo yourself shut yourself off and And become actually kind of rigid and brittle. And then if you're a woman, for example, who uh, is too identified with the masculine without being comfortable in the feminine, then, you know, you you know, you can you can be shrill and not well related, Mm. you know. And if you're if you're a man who is, you know, all wrapped up in the feminine and you haven't gotten comfortable with the masculine, then you, you you may not you may
0: not have really claimed your own stance in the world. Yeah. I, I, I uh, yeah, that makes tons of sense. And um, it, it's bringing about all kinds of uh, thoughts for myself, mm-hmm. but also since we leaped into this last minute um, and we can't, and it's such a gender is such a supercharged topic. Yes. I would recommend people go check out your episode of this young in life on the anima, uh-huh. because I think that you all tackled it in a very nuanced way. That's really powerful, Mm. um, for thinking about these two energies that exist in all people and how to kind of think about how to relate to them. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that's a good reference point since I did put you on the spot Uh on a topic that is humongous. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I love, I love that. It gives me a, a lot to think about. Um, well, Thank you so much for doing this. It was a, such a huge highlight for me. I can't even uh, fully describe it, um, and I just had a blast talking Great. through all this stuff with you.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. I I loved. I just want to say I loved your book, Invisible Things. Thank you. I think it's really deep. Yeah. And, thank uh, you. One of the things I really appreciate about it is you know and memories, dreams, reflections, Jung says, you know, all of the important events that have happened in my life have happened in
0: the inner world, Mm -hmm. which I
1: sometimes call the invisible world. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's
0: that's it. I I love that. And it's, um, I love your show and I think about how invisible things for me, one of the ways I've thought about it in light of, you know, Jungian thought is with the loss of religion, which is something you, you all talk about from yes. time to time. Uh, we have lost like the visual tokens that can, and the archetypes yes. that can kind of yeah, hold yeah. these things in, in a, in a person we're, we're so visual right? and we're, we need concrete things. And I think a lot about when listening to your show, I think a lot about how much invisible things has in common with st- Things like the, you know, Greek pantheon, because yes. they're really yes. embodying these yes. things that we can't hold or interact with oh, that's any great. other way. That's great. Yeah. So yeah, Very I'm cool. glad you liked it. Cool. Well, thank you, Lisa. Man, I just freaking loved this conversation. It was a dream. I didn't know if I'd ever get to talk to Lisa, but I've been listening to her podcast for a long time, and she's just so deep and has such great insights. And she's had such a big impact on me creatively. And I'm glad that I got to share this with you. If you want to hear more from Lisa, you can go check out her book that comes out next month in February 2023 been 2024. called Vital Spark. If you want to listen to more podcasts with Lisa, go check out This Jungian Life, um, and you can dive into the dream world and the world of Jungian psychology. Creative Pep Talk is your weekly podcast companion for your creative journey. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. I'm a New York Times bestselling picture book maker and illustrator for clients like Apple and Xbox. I pep talk teams at creative hubs like Warby Parker and Sesame Street. And I make this podcast because as someone with ADHD, it takes a whole lot of creativity just to get out of bed in the morning, let alone attempting to try to create a thriving creative practice this show is just me sharing the things that seem to be helping me in case it helps anybody else shout out to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack huge thanks to Connor Jones of Pinning Beautiful for sound design and editing the show massive thanks to Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds and thanks to you for listening until we speak again stay pepped up